Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. Today we have something special for you. We're going to share another lesson from one of our great Word on Fire Institute courses. Today we're hearing lesson one from our course titled, How Nuns Can Misread the Bible. Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, of course, the religiously unaffiliated. This course is taught by Dr. Anthony Pagliarini, who's a Notre Dame professor of sacred scripture. And in the course, he teaches us how to read the Bible ourselves, but more importantly, how to become better evangelists of an increasingly religiously unaffiliated culture. So we all know nuns, right? We all have friends or family or coworkers, those with limited theological, religious, or biblical background, and who approach the Bible as something strange and unintelligible. Well, this course will teach you how to talk about the Bible with people who are confused about it. So it's a really great course. Today we're going to hear lesson one titled Divine Eloquence. And then if you want all seven lessons in this course, you definitely want to sign up for the Word on Fire Institute. That's the only place you'll be able to watch all seven lessons in this course. You can do that at wordonfire.institute. And now's a really great time to sign up because when you do, we'll immediately ship you a package with all sorts of cool stuff. You'll get a free copy of Bishop Barron's book titled Centered, The Spirituality of Word on Fire. You'll also get a copy of the Evangelization and Culture Journal, which is our beautiful quarterly publication from the Institute. And of course, you'll have immediate streaming access right now to watch all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs, including the two latest episodes of our Pivotal Players series, the episode on St. Ignatius of Loyola and the episode on Bartolome de las Casas. So lots of amazing stuff you get when you join the Institute. Again, do it at wordonfire.institute. That's the website, wordonfire.institute. Well, sit back and enjoy lesson one from Dr. Anthony Pagliarini's course on how nuns can misread the Bible. Enjoy. Hi, friends. I'm Dr. Anthony Pagliarini. I teach theology at the University of Notre Dame. And I'd like to think with you about a number of ways that we misunderstand the Bible and offer what I hope is a more sure-footed approach to God's self-revelation in Scripture and in the tradition. Now, we can't address all the ways that Scripture gets mishandled. There's lots. But if we can handle a few challenges well, and if we could think a little bit more deeply about just what Scripture is, I think we'll be in a good position to handle whatever challenges do come our way. There are, I'm sure, any number of people who willfully misread the Bible. We've all seen the aggravated op-ed or blog piece that that plucks something odd from the Pentateuch and puts it forward as evidence of the Bible's ridiculousness. Leviticus 29, for instance, tells us that everyone who curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Or in Sirach 42.14, we hear it said, Better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. That's a tough one. Now, against those who would read these verses in isolation, there's there's almost no defense. You simply can't make someone understand what they don't wish to understand. As Thomas Merton said, the first quality of a good reader is humility. One's willingness to to be open and even vulnerable before a text. If we're not, 
Well, then scripture can become, to borrow an image from St. Irenaeus, just like so many individual tiles from which we can make the mosaic of a dog or an angry op-ed instead of the image of a king whose likeness the words actually convey. I confess, though, that in years of teaching students from all backgrounds and creeds, I've met almost no one who is willfully malicious, someone who misreads the text deliberately. What I do see time and again are bright young minds who approach the text with a firm idea of what it ought to be and who are then totally distraught at finding it to be something else entirely. An analogy, not that I've ever done this, it's like drinking from the orange juice carton when you think you've grabbed the milk. It's disgusting. But not because the juice is bad, but because you thought you were drinking something else. Now, the point is that our expectations of what a thing ought to be go a long way in determining whether we find it palatable or not. And since scripture is an ancient text written in a foreign tongue, it's often the case, even among those of us who want most to love and to defend scripture, that our expectations don't match the reality of what scripture actually is. Despite our best intentions, we can become bad readers of the text. We can make that image of a dog instead of the image of a king. Now, as an antidote to this, both in ourselves and in those to whom we minister, I want to suggest three things in this video. First, Scripture possesses a unique eloquence, one that simply doesn't conform to our expectations. The prophet Isaiah says of the face of Christ, that he had no form or comeliness that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Scripture's the same. By the canons of worldly beauty, scripture is very often of little account. And yet, it somehow manages to reveal the face of him who is all beautiful. Scripture's unique eloquence, its divine eloquence, refashions our vision so that we may see God and begin ourselves to bear his likeness. Secondly, if we would come to appreciate and to understand this beauty, we must read sacred scripture as a whole. It's the same one God who speaks in many and various ways throughout. While the different works have their own integrity and uniqueness, all of them reveal the one true God, and so they, they complement one another. But, and this is the third point, just as we must read scripture as a whole, so too we have to attend to the diverse character of each work. God makes real use of people as authors, and he addresses himself to a definite context. Scripture is neither a magical divine oracle, nor is it simply a mundane piece of literature. It is the word of God in human speech, or to use a word from St. Ephraim, scripture is God in a garment of words. 
And so to understand it rightly requires an attentiveness to the many and various ways, the genres of speech, through which God reveals himself to us. Now to see what I mean in speaking of scripture's unique eloquence, let's have a look at Caravaggio's inspiration of St. Matthew. We'll come back to this later when we read from Vatican II. Now in the painting of his predecessors, like Raphael and Michelangelo, one finds something of an ideal quality. Their works are full of light, perfectly proportioned, immaculate. In contrast, Caravaggio's figures are almost disappointingly and robustly ordinary. Have a look at Matthew, dressed in a plain red tunic, barefooted, kneeling on a rickety stool. But the effect of the painting is not one of evacuating the sacred of its sacredness. Rather, it reconfigures our conception of just what the sacred is, or better, where the sacred can be found. It suggests that what Dorothy Day called the business of living is invested with cosmic importance and that the presence of grace in this world, the outworking of God's providence, doesn't take place over there, doesn't take place in some special reserve. Rather, it unfolds in what is most robustly ordinary in the space of lives like our own. Said otherwise, Caravaggio shows us a presentation of the sacred that upends our expectations. It shows us a life of grace in a way that is more beautiful than anything we otherwise would have imagined or would have seen. We can find something analogous in the conversion of St. Augustine. As someone trained in the art of rhetoric, he had a deep appreciation for the ancients. So much so that even when he desired to know God and to love the works of scripture, he couldn't help but find them inadequate. They are, he says, lowly as you approach. They appeared to me to be unworthy to be compared with the dignity of Tuli, that is Cicero, for my inflated pride shunned their style. In other words, scripture didn't conform to his expectation of what divine speech ought to be. He thought it should hold some elevated form. Scripture was rather lowly as you approach. It was ordinary, much like the figures in Caravaggio. Later, Augustine would speak of the authors of scripture as having an eloquence peculiarly their own. Now, while at times, as with, say, St. Paul or the prophet Amos, the words could hold their own by any standard, the beautiful works of literature. It was, Augustine says, not the qualities which these writers have in common with the heathen orators and poets that gave me such unspeakable delight. It was, rather, their ability to take a form appropriate to the, to the communication of wisdom, a form that was both revelatory of the one who speaks and matched to the needs of the one who hears. God accommodates his word to us. And this accommodation is most effective and is itself revelatory. In this way, it is paradoxically 
actually the most profoundly skilled work of rhetoric. It possesses its own peculiar eloquence, a divine eloquence. And precisely in its variability and in its humility, it shows forth in a way that nothing else could, the love and the humility of him who speaks. Now, if we want to be attentive to the unique contours of this divine eloquence, the church teaches us to keep two things in mind, the unity of the whole of God's revelation and, second, the irreducibly human features of that revelation. Let's take them in that order. It's the second one that's going to be the crucial point. The writing of sacred scripture takes place at discrete moments in history and through the genius of a great many authors. All the same, it is the same one spirit which inspires these authors and makes of their various contributions one unified revelation of God. In this way, while scripture belongs to the historical moment in which it was produced, it's not confined to that moment. The same one God who inspires an individual author of scripture continues to reveal himself and so draw each earlier moment into a chorus that spans the centuries. The Second Vatican Council in Dei Verbum, its document on divine revelation, teaches that Holy Scripture must be read and interpreted in the sacred spirit in whom it was written. As such, attention must be given to the content and unity of the whole of Scripture if the meaning of the sacred texts is to be correctly worked out. The living tradition of the whole church must be taken into account, along with the harmony that exists between elements of the faith. Put simply, God is the primary author of Revelation. And what he reveals of himself in scripture holds together as one. But the trouble comes in, of course, when we try and discover this unity, only to stumble upon any number of contradictory claims, both in the details of history, in theological emphases, in the depiction of God even. Our task in some of the following videos is to address these difficulties, or some of them. But as a lead into these discussions, we should note the one truth that stands behind all of what we'll hear. Put simply, God speaks not according to what his majesty deserves, but according to the needs of our weakness. Dave Verbum summarizes this beautifully. In sacred scripture, while the truth and holiness of God always remains intact, the marvelous condescension, the emptying of eternal wisdom is clearly shown. That we may learn the gentle kindness of God, which words cannot express, and how far he has gone in adapting his language with thoughtful concern for our weak human nature. For the words of God expressed in human language have been made like human discourse, just as the word of the eternal father, when he took to himself the flesh of human weakness, was in every way made like men. 
There's an analogy between the incarnation and the inspiration of Scripture. Speaking of the Blessed Virgin and comparing her to a tree whose leaves soften the bright light of the sun, the Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins says, through her, we may see him made sweeter, not made dim, and her hand leaves his light sifted to suit our sight. That is to say, through the mediation of the humanity, be it the Virgin's humanity, which becomes Christ's own, or be it the author's humanity in writing the books of Scripture, through this humanity, God draws near and, as it were, sifts himself to suit our sight. God speaks according to the needs of our weakness. Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov gives us an idea of just what this means. At one point, we hear Ivan, who's not the best character, by the way, say, one can love one's neighbor in the abstract or even at a distance, but at close quarters, it's almost impossible. The irony, of course, is that to love them in the abstract is not to love them at all. Love is always at close quarters, always an act realized in the concrete and often ugly particulars. I once, continues Ivan, read somewhere of John the Merciful, a saint, that when a hungry, frozen beggar came to him, he took him into his bed, held him in his arms, and breathed into his mouth, which was putrid and loathsome from some awful disease. It is precisely these close quarters into which God enters and in which he speaks. To say with St. Paul that scripture is God-breathed is to view the Lord as someone like St. John the Merciful, jarring though the image is. Into our brokenness, God breathes spirit and elicits from his beloved the very words that give him perfect expression. God draws near and sifts himself to suit our sight. In Davy Verbum, we're taught, in composing the sacred books, God chose men, and while employed by him, they made use of their powers and abilities so that with him acting in and through them, they, as true authors, consigned to writing everything and only those things which he wanted. Even through our weakness, God acts perfectly. This affirmation that particular men and women are true authors carries certain consequences for interpretation. To search out the intention of the sacred writers, attention should be given, among other things, to literary forms. For truth is set forth and expressed differently in texts which are variously historical, prophetic, poetic, or of other forms of discourse. The interpreter must investigate what meaning the sacred writer intended to express and actually expressed in particular circumstances by using contemporary literary forms in accordance with the situation of his own time and culture. 
for the correct understanding of what the sacred author wanted to assert, due attention must be paid to the customary and characteristic styles of feeling, speaking, and narrating, which prevailed at the time of the sacred writer, and to the patterns men normally employed at that period in their everyday dealings with one another. That's a long quote, but it summarizes beautifully a simple point. Scripture was not written in a vacuum. It is, to recall the painting from Caravaggio, robustly ordinary. It must be read with an understanding of those close quarters in which it was produced. God speaks, as it were, not from on high, but from on low. If we expect scripture to be something it is not, we'll fail to see, for instance, that Genesis 1 is a text written in the suffering of the Babylonian exile. And far from being a scientific account of anything, it is a theological text that affirms the goodness of creation and the value of man in a time when all seems lost. Or again, if we expect scripture to be something it is not, we'll fail to see the gospels as the unique form of history they are. Not simply a recording of fact, but a theological reading of all that Jesus really did and taught. In summary, if we hear and understand well the remarkable treasure that is sacred scripture, we must begin with the humility to hear God, not as we imagine he ought to have spoken, but as he, in his humility, actually has. Well, we hope you enjoyed that sample lesson from Dr. Anthony Pagliarini's course titled How Nuns Can Misread the Bible Inside the Word on Fire Institute. Again, the only place you can find the rest of this course is the Word on Fire Institute, so you want to sign up today. You can do that right now by visiting wordonfire.institute. It takes you just a couple minutes to sign up, but when you do, you get a copy of Bishop Barron's latest book, a copy of the Evangelization and Culture Journal. We're going to give you immediate access to all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs, in addition to dozens of other great courses inside the Word on Fire Institute. So lots of amazing content, a huge amount of value that you get when you sign up at wordonfire.institute. So again, hope you enjoyed this sample lesson and hope to see you inside the Word on Fire Institute. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show. Bye.